0: Greetings and welcome to the First Timothy Sermon Series here at Good Shepherd OPC, a mission work of Cornerstone here in Houston. My name is Miller Ansel, the church planning intern who delivers these sermons on Sunday evenings at 5 o'clock. Please check out our website at gsopc.org for more information on our evening worship as well as our midweek Bible study. Here is this week's sermon. Our Old Testament reading comes from Proverbs 28. It's only... verses here, Uh, but dealing with, um, of course, the mercy of God, a great theme for tonight, also with how we deal with our sins. Do we try to hide them from God, from people, from ourselves, or do we face up to them and, and embrace the grace of God? So Proverbs 28, verses 12 through 14, this is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention as it is read. When the righteous triumph, there is great glory, but when the wicked rise, people hide themselves. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. And if you'll turn to our sermon text in First Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. We'll just read the sermon text, chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, and the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it your righteousness is is revealed from faith for faith. As you have said, the righteous shall live by faith. So we ask now that you would increase our faith and show us the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Christianity is so stupid, she said. You guys think anyone can be saved? Like, if Hitler were just to believe before he died, he'd be in heaven. That's ridiculous. So said a server I used to work with when she was giving a track. Uh, along with the tip, she got the the tip as well, but she received a tract which prompted her uh, evaluation of our religion, a wrong-headed evaluation. And yet at the same time, her understanding of the gospel, her understanding of 1 Timothy uh, 1, 12-17, is actually spot on. Yes, God would save Hitler had he repented. Would have saved Osama bin Laden. He would have... Saved Margaret Sanger. He would even save uh, Paul of Tarsus. That's incredible. Because no one is so evil that our Lord would not shower them with mercy if they would turn to him in repentance, with faith and love. Well, how do we know that? We know that because of our text. We know that because Paul tells us he's an example of an incredibly terrible, wretched sinner who was saved by grace. The power of God is so mighty, it can save anybody. And Paul tells us we can know that because God's power saved him. Now, last week, our text ended with the gospel as sound teaching with which Paul was entrusted. And he's passing that on along, right? He's passing the torch along to Timothy. And here he writes a little bit on just what that gospel has been in his life and what that means for others. And then he can't help but to burst and to worship in the closing verse. So we'll spend a good bit of time this evening on Paul's testimony, but also examining this uh, saying for the general Christian that Christ came to save sinners. And finally, Uh, what our response ought to be to that, which is praise, which is doxology. So verse 12, Paul's testimony. In verse 12, he recounts his calling into the service of Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says he was judged faithful. Now we must be careful. This is a passage that could be distorted if we don't take all of Scripture into account. Uh, Because some people might want to say, uh, Paul was saved because he worked a faithful disposition within himself. Well, no, we don't agree with that. We do agree that we're saved by faith. Absolutely. Uh, but Paul did not work his faithfulness within himself. The same Paul, writing uh, about the same Ephesian church, right? Because Timothy's ministering to the church in Ephesus. He says this in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift. Of God. Thus, the faith and even the faithfulness that Paul had wasn't his own doing. It was a gift that he had received by which the Lord judged him um, worthy and put him into service. I mean, consider, what if the Lord had come looking for something good in Paul? Would he have found it? No, he would have found a blasphemous persecutor and an <laughs> insolent opponent. So that the faith that Paul has is a gift from God, by which he was judged to be put into the service of the Lord. It's very similar to the strength that we read, right? I think, him who has given me strength. It's the same idea. This strength that Paul has, uh, it doesn't come from himself. It comes from the Lord. Uh, so the strength, and uh, Paul has strength in order to serve. Uh, Paul likes to talk about his apostolic office, uh, asserting that authority that he has been given by Christ. He doesn't do that here, though. He doesn't say, I've been given strength to be an apostle. He kind of speaks of a more general office. Uh, I've been given strength in order to serve. And the reason is, uh, he's applying all that he's talking about to Timothy, to a minister of the Lord, Uh, and that office. It's in order that Timothy and even ministers today would never forget that they're not preaching, or they're not elders, or they're not deacons according to their own ability. They are ministers, they are elders, they are deacons according to the strength that has been given them by God. God calls men to minister. Man doesn't call himself, and men don't call men. The Lord calls men. And that brings up an application point that we're going to see throughout 1 Timothy, uh, because Timoth- obviously Paul's writing to a minister. And so you might sit there saying, well, I'm, I'm never going to be a minister. I'm never going to be an elder. I'm never going to be a deacon. Do I really need to, to come to Good Shepherd and hear all of this? Well, I can give you a couple of reasons right now why you should come and hear all of this and study First Timothy. Uh, One, if you're at Cornerstone this morning, you heard Reverend Arendelle speaking of uh, deacons. And the reason we study the qualifications of deacons is to see what all Christians ought to aspire to. And I'll add, not just deacons, elders, ministers. These are characteristics that we all ought to emulate in men. Secondly, it's very important so that we know, or that you know as a congregation, what to look for and a man. If you're looking to call a deacon, a minister, an elder, maybe you have a friend or a family member uh, looking to call somebody, or they just moved. Should I sit under this man's preaching? You say, read 1 Timothy. Does he meet these qualifications? So these uh, application points, they're for all of us. They're not just for men serving in office. And the qualification that we draw from verses 12 and 13 here this evening, is the minister's sense of an unworthiness to his calling. Too many preachers do not have an acute sense of their own sinfulness, and their preaching suffers for it. We must ask ourselves, does the minister know his depravity, or is he proud and arrogant? Paul never forgot the mire, as David said, the, the sheol or the hymnal says, uh, the lowest hell. He, Paul never forgot the lowest hell that Christ brought him out of. He never forgot his present sins either. Neither should Timothy. Neither should today's ministers. Thus Paul in verse 12, he's reminding us of the work of Christ in his life, especially as a servant of God. And then next, verses 13, 14, and 16, he goes into his own sinfulness and the provision of mercy. He goes into his own sinfulness and the provision of mercy that God has had for him. He says in verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul mentions how he has sinned in thought, word, and deed right here. Um, he sinned in thought. He called himself an insolent opponent, or some translations say he had deep-seated hostility to the Lord. So as, as an example of that, consider Acts 22, 19 through 20, when Paul said, They themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. I mean, there's more going on than just thought, but of course, all sin starts as a thought. Paul thought of all these evil, murderous actions prior, and then you have the the more explicit thought of approval. Um, So Paul sins in thought, he sins in his words. He says, I was a blasphemer. Acts 26, 9-11, through 11, Paul states, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme." And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. Wow. Um, it's not just enough for Paul to blaspheme and be that, uh, as he says, oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He tried to make others blaspheme the name as well. And lastly, he sins indeed, uh, that's really already been covered in these previous two quotes, but one short one here is he reflects upon the road to Damascus. And you can find this in Acts 9, 22, 26. Paul repeats it time and time again. Uh, It reads, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Or Saul being Paul's Hebrew name. So Saul, Saul, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul wasn't just persecuting the church, individual Christians. He was persecuting the body of Christ to which Jesus says, you're persecuting me, Paul. So he is sinning in thought, word, and deed. These are just a handful of examples from Scripture on Paul's life. Not to mention, I'm sure Scripture is just a handful of examples of Paul's transgressions. From what we just read of this man, he is somebody whose depravity knew no bounds. He watches the blood of Stephen stream along the ground. He gives a thumbs up, a nodding approval, as Christians are being stoned. He takes them out of church services and imprisons them. He even had the audacity to persecute Christ. Is there any grace for a man like that? Is there any mercy for somebody so evil? Shouldn't know my coworker have lumped the Apostle Paul in with Hitler? But I received mercy. That's what Paul says. Here's a man, he understood his godless depravity, and he sees it for what it is, rebellion against his creator, a breaking of his law. Friends, you may not be murdering, Christians. But what has stopped you? Nothing. That same wickedness, worse wickedness, could be in all of us. It could be in me, were it not, for God's grace. And although we're not murdering Christians, our sin is just as godless, it's just as rebellious as Paul's is. Do not be deceived. Learn. Instead, learn from the Apostle Paul. Not to glory in yourselves, to glory in God's mercy. Too often we take our sin lightly. We become self-righteous. We think, oh yeah, God did 99% of the (laughs) salvation and I did 1%. That's 1% too much. Paul makes it clear there was only evil inside of him. He did not change himself. The Lord completely remade the apostle Paul just as he has remade us that believe in him. We owe everything to God for the salvation he has given. Everything. Yeah, men casually admit that fact, right? Yeah, I owe it all to God. They'll quickly hide that, won't they? They try to make excuses. They're the exception to the rule. They're allowed to sin. Um, No, Why, why do we do that? Why don't we face up to our depravity? Why are we self-righteous from time to time? It's because we don't understand mercy. John Murray, one of my favorite preachers and theologians, said this. When we learn what mercy is, and glory and the salvation that mercy has wrought, then we know no plea but grace. We are willing to face the gravity of our sins. We are willing to be debtors, for mercy knows no excuse. Mercy knows no excuse. We have to face up to our sins no matter how they were committed. Paul tells us his sins were committed in ignorance. That's why he received mercy. Don't misunderstand this. Paul doesn't receive mercy, uh, the, the, the grounds of his receiving mercy. The reason is not because he was ignorant. Uh, ignorance is no excuse for our sins, right? I mean, ignorant sins are a lesser crime than knowingly sinning, but they're still sins. What Paul is saying is that he did not sin with the high hand, that he did not sin against the Holy Spirit, that he wasn't sort of metaphorically spitting in the face of God when he sinned. In fact, he's pointing out that his sins were so heinous that had he done them knowingly, He would have been placed outside the scope of God's mercy. His ignorance, it's like a a senseless beast trying to attack God. It just doesn't make sense. And no doubt he has the Damascus Road experience in mind when he met the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And it was at that meeting that he was given faith and he was given love for the Lord. No longer was Paul this blasphemer, uh, insolent opponent, persecutor. Now he was a child of God with faith and love. And he gives thanksgiving. As I've already mentioned, the faith uh, that Paul has came from God. The love that he has comes from God as well. It didn't arise out of his heart, but it is proof that he has received grace. And he didn't just receive a little grace. He says uh, it's overflowing. Almost a literal translation of the Greek is super abounded. It's a superabundance of grace that Paul has received. And if you're a Christian here sitting here tonight, that's your story as well. There was nothing good in you, but the Lord out of grace and mercy gave you a gift of faith and love. As Paul says in verse 16, that his conversion is an example to you of God's patience with sinners to whom he gives eternal life. So you see, Paul's a model of a great sinner to whom the Lord supplied great mercy. And this applies to all people. So the the general testimony of Christians, verse 15, uh, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is a faithful saying. We're going to run across a couple more of these in 1 Timothy. Uh, There's even one in 2 Timothy, one in Titus. Uh, The sayings seem to be some sort of maxim that were passed around, not just the Ephesian church, but passed around Christendom. And they all deal with basic issues of salvation. This particular saying likely comes from Luke 19.10, when Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So we're seeing uh, the reason for the incarnation. The Son of God became man, born of the Virgin Mary, because men are sinners. And the end result of his mission is the salvation of sinners. Nothing else but the full salvation of men and women was the purpose of Christ coming to earth. We're not told that he merely came to make salvation possible. Uh, we're not told that he came to kind of help us and nudge us along to salvation or that he came to be a good example. He did it all. Everything needed for salvation was supplied by Jesus Christ in his coming to earth. It is upon him that all of our hope rests. That's why his name is Jesus after all, right? His name means Yahweh saves We've seen that we're unworthy of God's salvation, but there is hope in Jesus because Yahweh, or God, saves. And this faithful saying that Christ saves sinners, is 100% absolutely true. Unlike the false teachers we've been talking about in weeks past, false teachers who have speculations and myths, that's not truth. But Christ came to save sinners. That's 100% true. We can trust it. Because it is the word of God. Then as Paul considers his life and the great sins he has committed and the great salvation that has been brought to him, he cannot help but be caught up into doxology. That is, into praise and worship of our great God who has had mercy upon him. Is that... Is that what we do when we consider our salvation? Do we get caught up into praise and to worship? Or have we become cold and jaded? For those of us who have been in the church for quite some time, the good news can kind of become old news. We are like the Ephesian church in Revelation who needs to return to its first love. Last Tuesday, doing door-to-door outreach, I experienced a number of people in need of returning to their first love. You say, "Are, are you a Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian. Where do you go to church? I don't know, the one down the road. I haven't been in a year. It's quite troubling. How do we avoid that trouble? How do we return to our first love? We follow Paul's example of never forgetting that we are sinners who received mercy and then respond in worship. Often we call that worship a doxology. It comes from uh, Greek meaning a word of praise. We're bursting into a word of praise as Paul does from time to time in his letters. And this is here, uh, 1 Timothy 1.17, classic doxology. They follow four uh, parts here. And Paul has them all. First, uh, the first part of this doxology, the one being praised. Who is it? The king of the ages, which is the, which is God, the sovereign ruler of all things. And since we know God is in control, that he's the king of the ages, we can truly believe that he'll save us, as that faithful saying goes. Secondly, in a doxology is the statement of praise itself. Here it is, immortal, invisible, the only God. So Paul praises God as he is immortal. He has no beginning. He has no end. He's not subject to decay. We can also note that any immortality found in humans or angels uh, is not essential to our nature like it is God, but it is a gift that God has given to us. He also says God is invisible. Children's uh, catechism captures this well. Uh, What is God? God is a spirit and doesn't have a body like a man. Can you see God? No, but he sees me. It's a great uh, summary of John 4, 24, that God is a spirit. And then Paul praises God because he is the only true God. People invent their own gods and idols, uh, but only one is true. And that is the Trinitarian God of Scripture to whom Paul is giving praise. The third element of a doxology is that duration of praise. Here Paul says, honor and glory forever and ever. The God who is merciful and saves wretched sinners is most assuredly worthy of praise for eternity. And the final element of a doxology is the amen, which uh, is an affirmation of all that has been said. When we say amen, amen, whether it's at the end of a prayer, at the end of a a hymn or a psalm, we're saying that everything we have just spoken is true. And that's what uh, Paul ends his doxology with here. Uh, Very truly, everything Paul has just said is absolutely true. We are sinners of whom Christ came to save. Perhaps you're here this evening. Maybe you came tonight thinking a lot like the server Uh, from the beginning of the sermon, uh, thinking, uh, I'm going to compare myself to my neighbor. I'm not as bad as them. I mean, come on, I'm no Hitler. Well, friend, it's only by God's common grace that you are no Hitler. I urge you tonight, right here in your seat, to shun any self-righteous thinking. Repent, turn to the Lord in faith and love, just as the Apostle Paul did. As we finish up here, May you sing the hymn of praise after the sermon as the first hymn you've ever sung as a new believer in Christ. Or perhaps you've been a Christian for quite some time and you've grown cold uh, concerning your first love. Again, I say, look to Paul as the example. He never got over meeting the resurrected Christ. It's by God's grace you too have met the resurrected Christ. Not like Paul on the road to Damascus, but you have met him through his Holy Spirit. You have met him through the preaching of the word and sacraments. You have met him in the scriptures. Don't be jaded, beloved. Be like Paul. Find the good news so unbelievable that you can never get over the grace and mercy that you have been shown. Continue to recall why Christ came. Recall the unlawful arrest. Recall the crown of thorns placed on his head. Recall his beard being yanked, out. the nails piercing his hands and his feet. Recall the atonement on the cross and his resurrection three days later. All for sinners like you and me. See, Christ didn't sin. He didn't deserve any of that but he took our place in order that we might be God's people and give praise to the one who is worthy. We were hopeless, and he gave us the hope of eternal life. So let us now, let's pray, and then let's burst into doxology, as the Apostle Paul did. O King of Ages, who is immortal and visible, the only God, we give praise to you, for you have pitied an unpitiable people. You have loved the unlovely. When we sought to break all your commandments and blaspheme your name, you were being patient in order to save us, to give us faith and love. Forgive us for our forgetfulness. Help our unbelief. Make us to be people who never forget. And go out this very week in awe and bewilderment that the Creator and Sovereign Ruler has had grace and mercy upon us. We pray this in Christ's name.